Hello, hello. This is Roxy, and welcome to the summer series for Saved by the City. Caitlin is on a hiatus writing her book this summer, so we're doing something a little different for all your lazy summer beach hours listening to podcasts. It's a summer travel series, and we are going around the world to see what's what for seekers in other great cities. We will be returning with our regular show this fall, and we are going to kick off season two with a dream guest that we are so excited about. Not going to tell you who it is yet, but you can be sure Caitlin and I were super fangirling. So be sure to join us this fall. For now, let's take a trip across the pond to London, England. From Religion News Service, it's Saved by the City, a podcast exploring the spiritual side of cities, from food to fashion to just finding your place in a city that can feel foreign. At Saved by the City, we are all about chasing our dreams without losing our devotion. For this week's summer series, we're riding the Gulf Stream to Old Blighty, London, England. With us today is a new friend, actually, someone whose work I've admired for a long time. And so I'm super excited to have her on the show. She's the head of public engagement at Christian Aid in London and an author, most recently, of the book God is Not a White Man. Please welcome Cheney McDonald. Yay! I'm so so excited to be here. I'm so glad that you asked me to do this. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're really happy to have you here and excited to uh, have you represent your great city. Yeah, old Um, blighty, as they say. I guess. As you said. (laughs) I don't know if they say that anywhere, but that's what we're calling it. So the first time that I encountered your work... um, you were writing about beauty, actually, and it was something that I was interested in. How do we decide what is beautiful, who is beautiful? Maybe it doesn't seem connected, but it feels connected to me, this idea of what is beautiful and also our representations of the divine and our ideas around what's divine, sort of defining what is good, what is beautiful, what is all of those things. So... Um, tell me a little bit about how, like your own journey from thinking about like beauty to wondering about how we represent the divine through whiteness. Yeah. So the kind of journey of my first book, Am I Beautiful? And writing about being a woman and how women are represented in the media and in the church in terms of our bodies, I realized that um, there is something distinct about my understanding of myself and my body as a black woman, as opposed to a white woman. And a lot of the things I was thinking about was the place of blackness, um, or the value of blackness or lack thereof in society more generally, but also in the church and in in depictions of God. So I want to take you back to the first time where I encountered God in my likeness. And um, it was in the middle of a shack. So I was reading uh, a book by William P. Young called The Shack. Yes. And it's about a man who goes through an unspeakable tragedy and meets God in the form of three different people. So the Trinity um, in a shack in the middle of nowhere. And in this book, God is represented as Jesus, a Middle Eastern man, which is kind of correct. Mm. Um, The Holy Spirit as an Asian woman uh, named Sarayu in the book. And God the Father, or Papa, as 
a curvy black woman. Yes, and quite the controversy. <laughs> quite the controversy. But, but in that, it was like seeing God for the first time looking a little bit like me. Mm. Um, and this was around 2007. And there was, I remember, I don't know if you remember, there was such an excitement about this book. Mm-hmm. Lots of controversy, lots of articles being written. And those who had read it were really careful not to give any spoilers. So that when I got to read the book and got to the moment where we meet God, Papa, this black um, woman God, um, it was a big surprise. Hmm. And I remember getting to that page and just being left stunned, just open mouthed. Wow. I, I was so shocked. And I remember calling my my mum, who had read the book before me, and we were just on the phone in silence um, hmm. because it was deeply moving and deeply profound. And we had never thought it possible to see a depiction of God as a black woman right. looking just like us. And I'd never known that I needed that, never mm-hmm. really noticed that I hadn't seen God uh, looking like me. Because I grew up in the evangelical church in the UK with white God, Mm-hmm. and white Jesus. Um, and that's who I saw in Sunday school, children's Bibles, but also in Hollywood films, like uh, The Greatest Story Ever Told and The Passion of the Christ and Jesus of Nazareth. And as a kid growing up in evangelicalism, I loved me some films about Jesus. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. But, <laughs> um, but in all of them, Jesus was played by a white guy with wavy, sandy brown hair and blue eyes who kind of looked um, a little bit like my husband, actually, um, which is kind of weird because there aren't, <laughs> there aren't that many people who look like my husband or white Jesus um, in, in the Middle East, which is obviously where Jesus right. was from. Um, and as I've grown older, I've realised that the picture that I have me as a black British woman, the picture that I have in my head of Jesus is exactly that sandy haired, blue eyed guy, mm-hmm. um, like the one depicted in a really famous painting by Warner Salmon. It's an iconic image yes. called the head of Christ. You know it? Everyone listening to this can immediately picture it. I am sure <laughs> it is so ubiquitous. Yeah. Apparently it's been reproduced a billion times uh, around the world. And that, so it's not just in America. Um, it's in Christian homes in mm-hmm. India and in Nigeria, where I'm from. Um, and God in my head, as opposed to Jesus, um, he looked a little bit like Father Christmas or Santa, as you might yes. say. Um, uh, fluffy white hair and beard and old. Mm-hmm. But it's not really just about what Jesus looks like. And that's what I realised I've realised that all of this shows us um, that white supremacy um, underpins every era of culture and society, but also church. And growing up in evangelicalism and working for evangelical Christian organisations, as I did for many years, I realised that I was surrounded by whiteness and maleness, um, Mm -hmm. both in leadership of those uh, churches and organisations, but also growing up watching God TV. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know this might sound a bit weird, but even as a British child um, in London, seeing people like Kenneth Copeland and Pat Robertson and uh, Jerry oh. Farwell. <laughs> that got over to England too, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, so I must have thought somewhere inside that I guess God must love white men because mm-hmm. these are these are the guys that he's putting forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, all of this came to a head in 2016 when I woke up in my bedroom in southeast London on the morning of Trump's election mm. and realised that not only had this misogynistic, racist, 
egotistical guy become the president of the United States, but that it's my white evangelical brothers and sisters that had put him there. Yeah. That was shocking to me, um, but it was also deeply painful. And I felt it really personally because I couldn't believe they'd done that. (laughs) And I guess I realised in that moment that these people with their white Jesus were not my people after all. Oh, yeah. Laying it on thick right away. Sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we do here. Um, Caitlin and I have grappled with this some, especially the election in some previous episodes. And it's interesting to me because it was such a an existential crisis for many evangelicals in the U S looking at white evangelicals in our country and going, wait, what? Like, this is not who I thought we were. Um, I don't know why it surprises me that you were feeling the same way in London in another country. Um, I, you know, I think I had some assumption that you all just sort of thought we were crazy anyway. Yeah. <laughs> we <laughs> like, do think that. <laughs> oh, like what those crazy Americans are doing again. Um, <laughs> but that it, it wouldn't feel personal to you. Like it would feel like sort of distanced or huh. like a different, you know, a different group of people, not a personal betrayal to you. Yeah. So I think for most people in the UK, they were like, okay, yeah, Americans are crazy. They've done a really (laughs) ridiculous thing. Um, But I think, I guess part of the beauty of the church is this idea of a global family, right? So I think if you grow up as a Christian, or if you're part of the church, and particularly part of the evangelical church, which is very synonymous now with uh, American evangelicalism and American Christianity, we felt it Um, because we felt part of it. And then I guess it can be difficult for Americans to understand how they're seen um, around the world and how America rules the world, really. Um, Everyone else kind of is really interested in what happens in America. Mm. Um, uh, We uh, take our lead from America. We talk about, in the UK, we talk about that special relationship between the UK and the US, but I'm not sure. I feel like it's a bit one way. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so America totally, yeah, we're totally obsessed with what you you guys get up to. Mm. But it is the, the sense of, I guess, personal betrayal because we feel part of your family, even if you don't recognize that. Uh. <laughs> you know, you you kind of alluded to this. You were born in Nigeria. You moved to London and you grew up as part of the evangelical church there. Tell us a little bit about like what is different or what is the same maybe about the UK evangelical church, what does that feel like there? I mean, it's it's a super political power here. It's also all these different denominations. Um, you know, we have sort of a cultural memory of things like Focus on the Family, Adventures in Odyssey, um, Christianity Today. What is it like in the UK? What is it like there? Yeah, so I think we're probably um, not the majority in terms of numbers um, mm-hmm. in the UK, but the evangelical church is definitely where there is growth um, and vibrancy. Um, so we often talk about the dwindling numbers of people that go to Church of England churches or the kind of traditional churches in the UK, whereas um, the evangelical church in the UK is pretty diverse. And that's probably where it's different to the US. So mm-hmm. in the UK, evangelicalism encompasses um, the Immigrant communities and immigrant churches, Black Pentecostalism, 
um, as well as the very wealthy middle class uh, evangelicals who are probably more um, likely to vote um, conser- conservative, um, but also newer evangelical churches that came about really as a reaction against, um, I guess, the traditionalism uh, of the Church of England. So in the 70s, there are loads of these new denominations that sprang up that would call themselves evangelical, house church movement, lots of those mm-hmm. kind of newer, more modern churches are evangelical churches. But I think that what what is different is the diversity and the racial diversity in particular of evangelicalism in the UK. Would you say that US evangelicalism is really means white evangelicalism? Right. Or would you include diversity in that? Well, that's a that's a big loaded question. (laughs) Um, you know, and it totally depends on, um, in some ways who you're asking. Um, I think white is often a silent signifier, even when people think that they mean a bigger, broader, multicultural, multi-ethnic movement. Um, but if you're talking about like, what do people believe and what kind of church do they attend? Then evangelicalism is very diverse. Mm, Yeah. But if you're talking about, you know, a certain, category of people that sort of represents the movement in terms of what it's become in the U.S. as a symbol, you're talking about like white evangelicalism. Yeah. And and that political link is probably different as well, because in the UK, the state church is the Church of England. Right. And you have um, Church of England bishops in the House of Lords. Um, The the Archbishop of Canterbury is the person that um, kind of is very much involved in, in politics and in in the monarchy. Um, so that is really interesting and obvious. And evangelicals, some of whom are Church of England evangelicals, don't have that political clout. Um, increasingly, we're seeing lots more evangelicals wanting to, um, I guess, uh, influence politics or mm. be- become much more engaged, but we don't have that history of, um, we don't have a Billy Graham who's prayed with every right every president, for example. Um I don't know if I'd recommend going that way. (laughs) (laughs) It's worked out well, no? (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) So in some ways, the Church of England is the big political church party. And evangelicalism is what? More subversive, more underground? It's not underground, but like you've said, it's more diverse so so is it in some ways it represents a non-majority whereas in here evangelicalism in some ways represents a majority it represents a non-majority but the evangelicals who engage in politics in the uk are still very middle class wealthy Mm -hmm. often white men Mm -hmm. i think they're probably just just newer so i think we don't have that long history you don't have centuries of engagement in politics um but there's a definite part of evangelicalism and part of the bebbington's quadrilateral which i know that you talked about before (laughs) um part of bebbington's quadrilateral and the um what exactly evangelicals believe is around that idea of being able to influence society that our Mm -hmm. faith plays an active role in society and that is why evangelicals are drawn to the political process to make a difference there so you had this heartbreaking moment in 2016 where you felt um, disconnected from the people you thought were your people. It's been five years. Like, where have you gone from there? I mean, you've. Are, would you still call yourself an evangelical? Do you still sort of operate in those circles? What What kind of has changed or what did that moment spur for you? 
has it been five years? It feels, like, <laughs> it feels like yesterday. It's been a long five years, but it's been, it also feels like yesterday. A lot's happened. Um, I no longer feel comfortable using the term evangelical to describe myself because I don't find it helpful. Um, mm-hmm. And that's whether or not I believe in, you know, the four tenets, tenets of Bebbington's quadrilateral. Mm-hmm. I think that the evangelical church in the UK and around the world has really failed on so many fronts. Um, it's failed women, it's failed black people, it's failed gay people. And mm-hmm. I don't find it helpful to, to identify with that term. Um, I still maintain a broad uh, kind of friendship group of Christians, but I'm also on the uh, board of a place called Greenbelt, Greenbelt Festival, which I guess um, it's an annual festival that takes place in the summer. And we have had a lot of American um, people can come and speak at Greenbelt over the years, but they would include people like Rob Bell, um, mm-hmm. uh, Nadia Boltz-Weber, um, Shane Claiborne. So very, very much more kind of like red letter Christians. And and these are the people that I think feel like are my family now. Okay. Um, and often people who have moved away from evangelicalism are and are recovering from it. So I think I'm in that space right now. I, I understand that space. And we are going to come back to that. We are going to take a quick second to give a shout out to our patrons who make all of this possible. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. For the best in global religion reporting, religionnews.com. And if you like what we're doing here at Saved by the City, let us know. You can rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Send an email to sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com or follow along on Twitter at hashtag Saved by the City. So I have brought my friend, I hope you don't mind, I've brought a plus one to this party. Um, He's my friend, uh, he's called Azariah France Williams, and he's a priest in the Church of England in Manchester. And he's also written a book called Ghost Ship, Institutional Racism and the Church of England. All right, let's bring him on. Hello there. Hi. 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 Hello. (laughs) Great to see you, Azariah. Hey, it's good to be seen by you both. It's nice to meet you. I'm Roxanne. Thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you and your audience. <laughs> so, Azariah, we've been talking a little bit about uh, the evangelical church, but we've also talked about the differences between evangelicalism and the Church of England as the state church. Now, so I'd love to hear from you as someone who is a priest in the Church of England, but is a black man. Uh, there aren't many of you. Um, mm. Just um, what it's like to be one of the few black priests in the Church of England. Certainly. So uh, some years ago, I um, uh, went to do a a sermon, a homily at St. Paul's Cathedral, which is a very grand space. And just above me on the canopy, there was um, uh, there was a big disc and it said for God and for empire um, in a circle. Oh, my. Oh, my. (laughs) Standard. Is it? No. (laughs) There was this moment, an out-of-body experience, where mm. I knew that this space wasn't designed with me in mind, but it was built on the backs of people like me. Right. And, and, and there was such a, a disconnect. Within the Church of England, people can say it's the it's church of the English and an elite version of the English at that. 
and there's a template that you're expected to to follow you're expected a pattern you're expected to be within and if you don't match that people find it hard to see or hear or recognize your god-given calling your god-given vocation so one example of that is when i was based in a particular area that we call a, a parish and one evening, there was a knock on the door and I went and there was a lovely, smiley lady um, who asked me, I'm going to moving house tomorrow. And can we please use the, the church car park for the removal truck that was coming in? And I said, that's absolutely fine. And she thanked me and went about her way. The next morning, there was a letter on the floor. And when I picked it up, it was this lovely letter that said, um, uh, to the priest here, there's a lovely young man who answered the door last night, and I hope it's okay that I save the church car park, but he's very smiley and friendly. <laughs> and so uh, just to say, you know, thank you. And so I was there wearing right. the full my clothes as the vicar of the church, yeah. full gear, and I wasn't seen, you know. So I guess there are a couple of examples of where I learned that this thing I find myself in wasn't designed with me in mind at all. Okay, so that raises a question for me, <laughs> which it wasn't designed for you. What makes you want to stay part of it and be part of it? Um, I want to be um, someone who can change the narrative. And so although the institution around is quite fixed and rigid in its ways, mm. I want to be there for others. I came from a Pentecostal fundamentalist setting to evangelical charismatic to then mildly conservative to then okay. kind of out the other end. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and for me, uh, the Anglican Church, the thing that attracted me was that it's almost like um, uh, the whole sort of the, the church in miniature because you have left-leaning Anglicans, you have right-leaning Anglicans. And so I thought, however my ideas about God and life shift, shape or evolve, there's probably a niche for me in there somewhere. Um, there's someone who um, who's a, a black liberation theologian in the UK called Anthony Reddy. And one of the things I like that he speaks about is, um, is that um, within some of the black Pentecostal um, majority churches, you have freedom of body you don't have freedom of thinking within some of the main line mainstream uh, church like baptist anglican methodist you have freedom of thinking but not freedom of body wouldn't it be wonderful if you have freedom mm. of body and freedom of mind you know yeah. and that's something i would love to work towards some a faith that's more embodied and so for me there is something within the Church of England, the, uh, there's a grassroots about it. There's a sense of rootedness in community. I get to be alongside mm. people. So I'm not a company man, but I am an accompany man. <laughs> I can accompany people yeah. and it gives me that authorization. And so for that, I stick with it, but it's tough. You always make me want to yeah. be an Anglican Every time I hear you speak, Americans are pretty cool, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, um, if it's okay, it, um, I've got a poem actually, which um, which speaks to some of this that I'd love to share. If that's if that's okay with you guys, I would love to hear the poem. Yes, please, please. Thank you. 
There is an old Jewish tale which enriches my own of Honey the circle maker who sees a man who planting the seed of a carob tree. Honey the circle maker asks why. Why plant something which will benefit those who live after you have expired? The man replied, I received the fruit for which my ancestors fought. So for my descendants, this seed, this thought will feed them when I am its soil. Hence, I plant, I labor, I toil. The government's racial disparity report arrived on April the 1st, but I am not a fool. The African child is divided from the Caribbean in their school. Just another example of divide and rule. A separation of an undivided identity leads to split personalities, altered destinies, broken harmonies. Racial crimes of the past are said only to haunt black people. So we should stop reciting, stop inviting the ghouls of yesteryear. That's gaslighting. The problems of racism are still evidently here. The authors argue against terms like white privilege and white fragility. Instead, it's simply a bias of affinity. The power imbalance is hidden from the light as white dominance and prominence are hidden out of sight. If whiteness becomes an airborne pathogen, black and brown folks are going to need some anti-racist sanatogen. The report indicates we can see the upside of slavery because look at the product. It produced me. The new narrative of how we came over to make Britain great, the empire, it is that we should inspire. Let's airbrush the gold rush for the sugar rush, black gold. But the authors of the report, stone cold, sober. This was no mere foreign exchange. Transatlantic slavery, only one side gained. The report says institutional racism is not a big factor in the heart of the matter. Geography, religion, socioeconomics is the cause. Job done. Racism gone. Cue the applause. Except... My mother could not freely choose the place where she could reside. Her qualifications nullified to diminish what she could provide. As for the church, this is where it hurts. Religion simply lied. It said she was welcome but left her outside. This report leaves black and brown people's deeper needs unattended. The state shield is removed. We're left undefended. But my faith is in the ones whose pursuit of justice may lead to their execution, martyrs for the cause of a cosmic solution, a pride of lions prepared to roar, exit every tomb, walk through walls and locked doors. The universal energy, love defeats all enemies, even if they kill you and you never get to see how the seed of your courage became a carib tree. Wow. <laughs> oh man <laughs> wow thank you thank you for sharing that with us thank you Azariah and thank you for being here it's lovely being um, here and uh, thank you for your podcast and what you're doing uh, so yeah keep on going because I'm sure there are challenges and hurdles and those who misunderstand and misrepresent uh, what you're attempting to do. So uh, my mum and dad, one of their phrases was keep on keeping on. So keep on keeping on, Roxanne and Chine. Always. So I think 
you know, in the States, we've had several years of kind of a cycle of racial reckonings, marches, Black Lives Matter protests. We're in a moment in the States of a new civil rights moment. I feel like in the last year, maybe even in the last several months, like England's having a little bit of maybe not quite to the extreme, but, you know, I think about most recently the World Cup and the Euros, the soccer players, the what? The Euros. I don't, I I don't know. (laughs) I just stepped out of my lane just now. (laughs) It wasn't the whole world. It was just Europe. The Euros. (laughs) And um, the black players who missed the penalty kick and then just the, the, the backlash that took such an ugly racial overtone to it. So I think about that and, and then I think about, Meghan Markle and um, just the vitriol that's been pointed her way has had racial overtones to it. Um, So it seems like at least from our perspective over here, it seems like, Oh gosh, England's really dealing with its own stuff right now too, or at least being forced to ask some pretty hard questions. And I definitely think we were right there with you last year. Um, with George Floyd's death and Black Lives Matter, and we had Black Lives Matter protests in London as well. But but definitely recent months, I think there's a particular thing around how black people in the public eye are accepted if they are in any way less than perfect. So for the three black, uh... black footballers, uh, Sancho, Saka and Rashford, um, obviously, they were emulated. They were stars um, until they missed penalties, and then they were just black men who weren't from here, who came over and took all their stuff. Right. Meghan Markle. If you look at the comparison between her and Kate Middleton, the newspapers over here, if Kate mm-hmm. ate an avocado, then it was you know there was a story that was a positive about it. If Meghan ate an avocado, there was mm-hmm. all this um, stuff about. Um, the, the harm that avocados do and it's really interesting to see that juxtaposition of how white womanhood um, is um, seen in public life versus black womanhood I think even more recently in, in the Olympics and Simone Biles or Naomi uh, yeah. Osaka or yeah. um, black women in particular who when they either stand up for themselves <laughs> um, as Megan mm-hmm. did um, that's when the vitriol is poured out. It's like, no, you don't. You you can fit in this box that we have defined and we will um, speak about you positively if you behave in a certain way. But as soon as you step outside of that, that's when you're going to see um, that you are just a, you're just a black woman or you're not as great as you think you are or all of those things. And that is really, really disturbing. Mm-hmm. Every black immigrant in Britain will tell you that our parents always taught us excellence was the best deterrent to racism um so there is that kind of quest for perfection i guess right which is why as soon as those guys missed the penalties we knew what was coming and of course like it's a completely arbitrary perfection (laughs) yeah like it's 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 a moving goalpost that you're never really going to be able to hit literally (laughs) did not mean to make a sports metaphor there but (laughs) so i mean so how do americans how are you guys analyzing that whole harry and megan thing does it does it (laughs) what does it say to you about england or the monarchy or british media um there's always been a fascination in the u.s 
with the yeah. royal family. Like I remember growing up, like my mom adored Princess Diana. And now I think you've got this, like we're rooting for Megan. She's mm. ours, you know, among some people. You kind of see people picking their sides on it in a very expected way. Like, oh, of course, yeah. you know. But the, the, the monarchy is really interesting from a, an immigrant perspective as well, because my my mother actually has a CBE. So every, you know, twice a year, the Queen gives out awards to people in public life from across different um, sectors. And then you can be a member of the British Empire or a member of the Order of the British Empire or a commander of the British Empire. So my mother is a CBE, got a CBE from the Queen for services to education. And so we all went to Buckingham Mm. Palace, our family. My mother was dressed Mm. in a full-on Nigerian outfit with her headdress and everything. She looked magnificent. And so she, um, you know, it was, her, it was called an investiture, so it's a, a ceremony um, where the Queen basically pins the CBE medal on, on my mum. And in that moment, it felt like, okay, now we are completely accepted. Like, we, we came from Nigeria, mm. and now look at our mother getting mm-hmm. a CBE from the Queen. Mm-hmm. So I think um, in, mm-hmm. when I was thinking about Meghan and her, what should have been her complete welcome into the monarchy and, um, and British life... Um, I had, you know, high hopes during that wedding. I was loving it. I was, I cried and everything. Loved this kind of interracial marriage, and this idea of black people yes. being accepted fully um, into the heart of the British monarchy. But obviously, what we have seen since is that she, she wasn't really accepted, um, and could she ever really have been? You know, you're you're in an interracial marriage as well, so I'm sure that that felt so much more personally, like this is gonna work yeah. this is amazing like and then like even personally feeling like i'm sure the disappointment of oh yeah things don't really yeah seem to but be they are still strong right it seems well who knows whoever knows what's happening in, yes. <laughs> in marriage but that at least <laughs> yes. um i think it's really important that um white men get to see what life is like uh for black women in society so i think my husband mm. and i when we were dating um He'd never really had to think about race, whereas I think about race almost constantly, like every minute <laughs> almost. Right. So in our kind of when we were dating and being in relationship with each other, he got to understand what it's like to exist as, um, in a black body. And I think for Prince Harry, he has seen a completely different side to what it is to be British or the British media and the racism that exists and the racism that is pervasive. And he has done brilliantly in um, trying to do something about it and speak out and show what is really going on. So um, I'm really always cheering for for, for white men who can, um, I guess, see the world a little bit differently because of relationship um, with black women and black people. So tell me, as we kind of wrap up, what are you really hoping for over, let's say, the next year? What are you really working toward? So when I think about the church in London, I can't help but think about the church, like, globally. And what I feel like mm-hmm. the church globally, particularly in, I guess, global north, western countries, I feel like we're in a particular moment of... Um, Sarah Bessie describes it as apocalypse, um, unveiling. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. even this week, I've just been rattled, shaken 
by the constant kind of unveiling of what is really going on behind the scenes of many of the churches that I have loved and been part of for most of my life from, you know, the the, the big ones like Hillsong or, you know, I've been listening to hearing about Mark Driscoll's church and all this kind of stuff. And I feel like we're just in this moment of deep, deep awakening to all the terrible stuff mm-hmm. that has happened. The misogyny, the racism, the power hungriness, mm-hmm. the abuse. Um, and that sounds really upsetting, and it is. I have had some big u- ugly cries this it week um, about it, just thinking about the complete mess that we're in. But, but Same girl. Yeah. We've got to surely, right, from this, we ha- we will do better. Um, we can't move forward unless we have taken a look at what has come before um, and realised that all the things that we cannot do again, we can never have a church that is putting forward all these views that are horrific, um, that make people feel smaller, um, that move people further away from God rather than nearer. So... Out of this the shaking and this really uncomfortable discomfort and horror that I'm experiencing, my hope is that we will come out the other side um, and have built something better. I hope so too. I I was literally listening to a podcast this morning and I just said out loud, I was on a walk through Riverside Park and I was like, huh. The chickens have come home to roost. (laughs) And it just really does feel that way. I mean, it feels like, like in some ways this was all really inevitable. Like you couldn't do the evil things that have been done for decades and centuries and not have the repercussions of that, that bad fruit, those chickens, all the farm (laughs) metaphors, um, (laughs) like they were always, they were going to have to happen. And kind of sucks to be in the middle of it but I also like truly hope that like this could actually be a turning point absolutely <sighs> we'll be okay we'll, we'll be, be okay, okay. <laughs> we'll be okay <laughs> well guess I'm glad to hear sad to hear I don't know which the solidarity <laughs> across the pond you guys are going through it too <laughs> Chinny McDonald it was so good so good to have you here today and to hear your incisive perspective and thoughtfulness. Tell our listeners where they can find you on social media and how to get your book. Uh, well, it's been really great to be here. Come back to London again, please. Um, uh, <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at, at Chinny McDonald. That's at C-H-I-N for November E. McDonald, as in McDonald's, on Twitter. And uh, you can find details about my book, God is Not a White Man, on ChinnyMcDonald.com. Thank you. And... Saved by the City is a religion news service production. The executive producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Wyndham. Shitty McDonald is our amazing co-host and emissary from London. Chaz Russo put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Chinny McDonald and Roxy Stone. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.